Hey, everyone. Happy to have you here for another episode of Legacy Matters. Today, as usual, we will talk about whatever comes up with a slight leaning toward discussions of preserving your legacy, preparing for things to come, and sharing stories we find amusing. All set. All right, let's do it. Okay, welcome. Welcome to Legacy Matters. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> Another fine day in Legacy Matters land. It is. So we are coming off Thanksgiving right now. Yeah. Thanksgiving weekend. Early December. Yep. Early. Oh, that's right. It is December. Yep. Yes. December 2nd. Time so marches on. It does. Crisp. <laughs> we'll, we'll do the weather. Crisp. Sure. Cool day today, but nice and sunny. It is. Bright sunshine so, for the first time in weeks, yep. it feels like. Yeah, exactly. And Good it's not Minnesota. snowing, so... It's pretty nice out today. It is. If you like that kind of weather. Oh, let's uh, let's not forget to uh, thank our listeners. Thank you very uh, much. Thanks for thanks for tuning in. Yeah, thanks you for, did. You yeah, did say thanks did, for tuning in. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting good at this thanks now. For finding us on your podcast dial. Yeah, uh, that's and, right. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> thanks for the comments. Yep. Some of them are good. Some of them aren't. But and, that's all right. And thanks for recommending us to your friends. I think that's our biggest help. Yep. Really. Yes, uh, when pass people find our nonsense and pass it along to others. Yep, it's a great thing. We appreciate it. We appreciate you listening. We do. Uh, so we've got a guest today, yep. and I'm going to go ahead and introduce our guest. We've got John Lurie in, and uh, you wrote this book. We'll get to that, but uh, we we do talk occasionally about the universe doing things, and somehow or other, I think it pointed us in the same direction. You were uh, selling a canoe online. <laughs> That's right. Hi, John. Hello. Hi, John. Thanks for coming in. <laughs> Hello, guys. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, pleasure. And I, you know, we just met a few minutes ago, and uh, like I told you, we don't do research on people, but I, I've been really excited for this to happen. Yeah, and, me too. Uh, I'm glad it finally is happening. And so here's the deal: I, I can't help myself. Uh, you know, when I every now and again, I'll just scroll through canoes it's like cathartic for me <laughs> or something it's a, it saying. gets a bit addictive actually yeah you yeah. know what i'm talking yeah, about i do the same thing yeah and i and i'm kind of always to be fair i'm doing it in the hopes that i find like a a good value on a nice a canoe that, mm -hmm. yeah that's right yeah mm -hmm. uh and i'm also looking for kind of like-minded people and i'm occasionally trying to play the hey i have a small nonprofit and I take kids out canoeing, can I get a better deal on this? You know, which I, I being so Minnesotan, I rarely <laughs> ask for deals. Like right. I can't haggle with people. No, you don't, you don't ask. You just mentioned that this canoe is going to be put to a good purpose. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Youth. Yep. Yeah. And, yes. and it's true. I mean, yeah. that's, that's the reality of what I do with canoes. So I'm, yeah. I'm always looking for a good donated canoe. And, and we just met each other, but just to let you know, I do the exact same thing. We're out there competing. <laughs> I, I also have a, a nonprofit and I take kids canoeing. That's so funny. Wow. I know. So I don't know what I'm going to talk about here. <laughs> you're going to, you'll have plenty of good input, but you can tell I'm, I'm pretty jazzed up about this one. John, you're like this mix between Sam and I, because before we started, you and I were talking a bunch of stuff. I have a feeling we know a lot of the similar similar people yeah it seems like it yeah yeah yep. well and and we haven't even gotten into the kind of third element that we'll get into here right. at some point so so anyway i happen across this canoe i reach out and you say oh that's you know that's funny i run this nonprofit. i'm like no kidding so do i you know and, yeah and the next thing we know 
Uh, you've got me reading a book, which I don't often do. And it happens that you and I have both paddled uh, one of the historic waterways of northern Min or northern America, North, North America. Yeah, northern Manitoba. Yeah, yeah, and and one of the most difficult waterways. Yeah, yeah, uh, a, a really great trip. That's the Hayes River. Um, I started. You started further south than I did by a long shot. Yeah, so, sounds like a grueling uh, kind of soul searching, <laughs> soul bearing. So are you guys, are you doing this? By yourself? No, I, I paddled. So so my book is called Canoeing with Jose. And uh, I wrote the book uh, a couple of years after the trip. The trip was in 2006. Mm -hmm. The book came out quite a few years later. Um, but the idea behind the book uh, or, the, or the trip was that uh, a young man, a Native American youth, a young Dakota kid named Jose, who was a mentee of mine in a, in a program that I worked for in South Minneapolis, uh, he was getting into trouble on the streets. Um, he was age 19. And I had was just getting into the dark side of a divorce and was getting uh, in a deep depression. Mm -hmm. And this was a trip that I'd had in my back pocket for many years. Um, Eric Severide did a, a similar trip back in 1930. A uh, famous journalist from basically this neighborhood we're sitting in now, northeast Minneapolis, and his first book was called Canoeing with the Cree. And I read that as a you know, freshman in, in college. And I thought, someday I'm going to do this trip. And someday was another 20 years after that point when I needed something drastic to pull me you know, back, into, back into mental health. Jose needed it uh, as well to stay alive. He had somebody coming after him. And I just thought this kid who had never been canoeing before, never been basically out of the city before, the most imperfect partner you can imagine, <laughs> right? but also a person for whom this trip would do the most good. Yeah. And I, I read the book. So, uh, it's being a guy who has guided a lot of miles worth of canoe trips with kids. Like it was almost infuriating to read <laughs> about sort of like just the choice to bring that kid. I totally understand it. And I, but you know, what a, what an undertaking to have a novice of, of that caliber out in the wilderness, but what a transformational event for him. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, as a, I don't know, I, I hate to throw myself into categories constantly, but I also teach a, a class at the university of Minnesota. And when you, are immersed in that environment. Everything becomes a classification. You're, you're this kind of person. You're that kind of person. You have this privilege. You have that privilege. So, you know, relative to Jose, certainly, I come from a background of of tremendous privilege, simply being a white male in this society. Yep. Jose comes from a background of the most deprivation you can possibly imagine a young child going through. And um, I thought, you know, if I go on this trip with another similar person to me, it's going to be a great trip. It's going to be healing and all that. But, you know, how much good is it going to do uh, for anybody else but me? And, and I'm a kind of person that likes to do some good in the world. Absolutely. And I thought, you know what? This is going to double my challenge to bring this kid. But uh, Double seems at a least. little light. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I knew that if we succeeded, that it was going to be something that would be of tremendous benefit to him. Well, you're gonna you're gonna get me a little teary. Uh, it it makes me want to go on trips. I've taken privileged children, and so 
financially privileged, I should say, Mm -hmm. Uh, not necessarily always emotionally privileged. So, you know, despite growing up in, not naming names so I can, you know, eliminate my fear over exposing someone, but when you've got affluent children, uh, 16, 17 years old, being sent to northern Minnesota from all over the nation or the world, and they're going, I'm taking them on a canoe trip, uh, the assumption is their affluence maybe has given them the tools necessary to do something like that, mm-hmm. when in reality, that doesn't, they don't go hand in hand. No, not at all. Right. In, in fact, they, they're pretty soft. In in a lot of ways, they are. So, so some, you know, that's the point of these trips, is it it exposes them to something they've never been exposed to, and they mm-hmm. find... Some of them find an inner strength and some of them melt down. And it's, Mm -hmm. you know, by the end of 16, 17 days out on the river, uh, out in the wilderness, they've all gained from it. But uh, it makes me want to get back out there and take sort of differently advantaged, I'll say, people out again. Okay, go ahead. I have no idea what this river is. <laughs> I don't know where you start. I don't know shit, right? Sure, yep. So, so where do you start? Ask. Where do you start? And, and what is this whole trip looking like? Like, are you, are you, you have to drive from here to someplace with this, with Jose, right? Okay, yeah. And then... So, so the original idea was to, to copy the trip that Eric Severide, who, you know, is, is deceased now, but became a world-famous journalist mm-hmm. and, and, you know, grew up here in Minnesota... Um, actually was a student at the U of M and, you know, eventually was a, a reporter who worked for Edward R. Murrow, reported on the fall of, of Paris when, when the Nazis um, entered Paris. Wow. He was, yeah, so really, yeah, really very well-respected guy. Guy, yeah, uh, news anchor on TV and on major network and so forth. So when I read his book, I was inspired to paddle the way that he did, which he and a buddy at age 17 and 19 paddled out of the Bedote area where Fort Snelling is now at the uh, confluence of the Minnesota and Mississippi rivers, they left from there and paddled up the Minnesota, down the red along the North and South Dakota border, and then um, up Lake Winnipeg, north of the city of Winnipeg. And then on the f- north side of Lake Winnipeg, there is a river called the Hayes, which is 500 miles to Hudson Bay on the north coast of Canada. Mm-hmm. So thinking about taking this trip with Jose, and thinking about what those kids did, they paddled upriver against the current for 325 miles before they found a downstream current. Oh, my God. Yeah, so just uh, for Jim and for others listening, so we're at the, we're kind of at a point where the watershed changes. So, right. So uh, the Continental Divide, or the divide that where water flows south through the mm-hmm. uh, Mississippi down to to new orleans uh that's one part of it and then there's this kind of dead water zone in the sort of north central part of our state that runs through probably the country i guess and that the water on the other side so you get to these places where the water is basically stagnant for 100 miles or so or 200 miles as it that's the top of the hill Mm -hmm. and on one side it rolls down to the to uh hudson bay uh, yep, Hudson Bay, and on the other down to New Orleans. Right, so. and then we have a third watershed, Minnesota, which is kind of beside the point for this discussion. But the third watershed would be the Great Lakes watershed, mm-hmm. which is up along the North Shore and yeah. and goes into Lake Superior and out to the Atlantic. Um, 
But uh, so to paddle upstream uh, up the Minnesota, before you can get to the red, you get over the divide, and the red then flows north. Um, I'm thinking about Jose and paddling upstream. He's, you know, and, and you should use a metaphor. The kid had been paddling upstream his whole life. Sure. Right. And it would take us probably about a week to paddle to Mankato, at which point Jose would no doubt have gotten on a phone, called one of his homies and bailed. So I'd have bailed. I, no doubt. <laughs> Paddling upstream sucks. So, yeah, so well, that's what I was wondering. Like, how hard is it upstream? Like, harder. You, yeah. You know, downstream in a light current, we were going 30, 40 miles a day. Mm-hmm. Um, against the current, we would probably do 15 miles. Yes, a day. That would not be. Good. It, it cuts yeah, your that's, that's, rate of travel in half, let's yeah. say. Right. Yep. And, and also, you know, just I just didn't want to give him an easy opportunity to bail on the trip. So I decided, let's go to the headwaters of the Red River, from which the water flows downstream going north, and we'll have a better opportunity for success. So we got in a car with some some buddies and loaded up our gear and drove out to Breckenridge, Minnesota, which is across the the Red River from uh, Wahpeton, North Dakota. And that's where we put in and began our journey to the north coast of Canada. Yep. And having paddled, so I put in on the north end of uh, Lake Winnipeg, mm-hmm. which is where the, there's a bridge, if, if you're headed into, uh, is that Norway House? Norway House, yeah. yep. Uh, if you're headed into Norway House, a few miles before Norway House, there's a bridge, and that's a putting in point for a lot of people. And mm-hmm. then you, you hop on the Ekamamish River for a while, which is, if you read books about this, and I don't know, I did not read Canoeing with the Cree. Yeah. Um, it was something that people at the camp that I worked for recommended, mm-hmm. uh, but I don't like doing research <laughs> no. before I jump into something. So I never read it. No, you want to have your own experience. Yeah. Yeah. What yeah. it is is what it is. It doesn't have to be based on what other people have done or what they say about it. Yeah. I agree with you. Well, thanks for so, understanding that because yeah. I always thought it was, you know, people thought I was a little crazy for not really well, doing much research. It's a voyage research. of self-discovery and it's a voyage of outward discovery as well. Yeah. If you don't know too much about what you're getting into. That's right. I think you're nuts for canoeing the Red River, though. The Red River was was horrible. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's what I assume. Muddy. Let's. It was muddy. You couldn't get in the water to clean up because right. it was. It's full of chemicals. It's full of mud. It's. It's just. It's. It's nasty. It's full of all these. It's full of invasive carp. These flying fish that come right. at you when you're. So they do have the the Asian carp in in the red. You know, if somehow when you talk to the DNR or you listen to news reports, they never mention this. But in my personal experience, we were attacked by flying fish for about 300 miles. That's, wow. Yes, yeah, I that, never hear about I've that. I've seen photos of this. This is where they're jumping right up, yep. right? Yeah. And landing in the canoe. Yep. Come, yeah. Or yeah. jumping over the canoe. And Jose, who was in the front of the canoe and already just mostly freaked out by, uh, you know, by white country folk. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. You know, you know yeah. by the, the rednecks. He was constantly freaking out about the rednecks. Well, his second biggest fear was these flying fish that, you know, him being in front of the canoe and our motion being what stimulated them to jump, they would come up and they'd, they'd be right in his face, like hanging there, you know, hissing at him. And he'd take his paddle and he'd bat them out of the air. Wow. Oh, my God. This sounds like some crazy Oh, Jim, movie. you'd die. <laughs> and, and how you de- Okay, so how deep is the river, like, when you're doing there? I mean, was he scared? I mean, did, did he... 
you know, was he a good swimmer? Um, He kept his life jacket on the whole trip. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I, I pretty much did two only because I can swim just fine, but it's only the two of us out there. Yeah. If something were to happen to one of us, we would both be in big trouble. Right. So it's just a matter of, uh, you know, safety and also just a smart precaution. Mm -hmm. It Uh, is. Yeah. That's, that's, how, how, maybe you said this, but how long is this trip? <laughs> um, our trip was about a thousand miles. Yeah, you didn't say that. Yeah, that's, that's... <laughs> I was waiting to see his Holy face. Shit. And we were out for about six weeks, and we slept every night uh, in a tent, except two nights we spent in Winnipeg in a friend's house where, uh, thankfully, we were able to take a shower after 21 days on the Red River paddling from right. Breckenridge to Winnipeg. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, that's, I want people to read the book trip. Yeah. That is crazy. Yeah. I want people to read the book because, uh, you know, I think you maybe know this, like when you try and explain to someone what these trips are like, it's sort of like their eyes glaze over. over. Yeah. I mean, it's really not, it, it's easy enough to tell an interesting portion of the trip to say this happened on this day. Mm-hmm. But the but the actual act of of paddling, you know, five hundred six plus weeks? miles, yeah, every it, single day we were moving almost every single day. Yeah, wow. there, there's nothing exciting about telling. It's hard to get that point across to people. And you know, the longest I've taken is the haze. I, I think I don't. Was that about a 12, 14 day trip, something like that? We did it in, I want to say we were 16 days on the water, mm-hmm. but we always take a couple of layover days. Sure. And and you plan for, you know, like Oxford and uh, Knee Lake are so big that yeah. you can get windbound really so, easily. So how big is this canoe? Now I'm trying to think of all the food that you had to bring. Okay. So we were in a 17 foot canoe, which is, you know, a basic standard, I would say a little, maybe, maybe a foot longer than a standard recreational canoe. So it gives Mm -hmm. it a little more stability. Um, when we started, I mean, we were ridiculously over, over geared, over packed as these trips, you tend to amass a bunch of stuff. And then the day of you're not quite all pared down and you throw it all in the boat and you go. Uh, <laughs> we were able to restock our food in Winnipeg. So after 21 days, we were able to completely go sh- grocery shopping at a real grocery store and get everything that uh-huh. we would need. Also, north of Winnipeg, we traveled through five or six First Nations communities mm-hmm. where they had extremely high-priced and low-quality foods available. But still, mm-hmm. we were able to to restock there as well. Okay. Yeah, there's there's a lot to unpack in all of that too. Those First Nations, uh, yeah, they they sort of receive the dregs of food, and I, you know, nutritionally pretty barren up there. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you mean? I don't know what that. Well, is. I, you know, I I know we stopped in Oxford House. Yeah, and and they have these things called uh, Northern Warehouse. Yeah, which is just like a a, a chain of basically government subsidized grocery stores that you would find across uh, native communities in Canada. Uh-huh. And it's like they get, it's like a food shelf, but you got to pay a lot of money for it. For example, like a can of soup might be four or $5. Wow. So generally speaking, most everything's out of date, which, mm-hmm. you know, I, I eat out of date food. <laughs> that part of it doesn't necessarily <laughs> bother me. But um, so the, these communities, you can, you can reach them only through, uh, you know, the air, right? And 
I don't know. Does does Oxford House have its own airstrip? Can you get a larger plane in there? Well, you know, they have the whole lake, so... Um, but float planes can only carry so much. Yeah, I, I didn't see an airstrip there. I didn't yeah. notice one. I wouldn't be surprised if there was one somewhere, but, uh, you know, most of the year they can land on the ice or land right. in the water. Right, and then, and then in the winter there's an ice road that they make, so they can get supplies oh. up there during the winter. Mm-hmm. Uh, funny that the rich white folks on Knee Lake have their own airstrip. Isn't oh, it? sure. Yeah, so on Knee Lake, which is a gigantic <laughs> body of water, it's, it's really three gigantic lakes connected. There is a resort, and it's called the Knee Lake Resort. And somehow they've managed to sort of occupy this entire gigantic lake as if it belongs to them. Yeah, they pissed me off. So they have their own campsites <laughs> all over the place. And I'm sure they never like sort of purchased the land and oh, I, I would permits to develop no. or anything. They just assume that they can take it. And um, I've got a story to tell about the Knee Lake Resort. Good, so do I. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear yours. Okay. Do we do we need to finish anything about the food though? So they have No, I'm 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 the, getting the picture. I the believe. big thing at the Northern store, so you know, we pack when you're packing for a camp, I that was not the first long trip I'd taken and not the first trip to the bay. I don't think. So anyway, uh we have we pack differently, I think, than than you do. You do a lot of freeze dried food and stuff like that. Yeah. So you know, I I, I did the old uh, you know go to REI and look at their wall full of freeze dried yep. bagged foods, and grab a bunch of stuff and um, you know do the calculations. We need this many lunches, this many dinners, and so forth. It's lightweight. There's no liquid in it. It's all freeze dried. And just to give you a sense of of how we ate most of the time on the trip is you'd pull a bag out of your food barrel. It says uh, Italian lasagna on right. the bag. You, <laughs> right. you heat up a couple of, two cups of water in your, uh, in your little camp propane stove. You literally pour it in the bag, seal it shut, uh, maybe squish it around a little bit, shake it up, wait about five minutes, and you have dinner for two. Right. Can you imagine the the look on an Italian's face like if you actually <laughs> so <laughs> if you gave him that shit so the only thing I've done is I did the Grand Canyon for like four days so mm-hmm. I went to REI and ah, got yeah. all that stuff that you're talking about too but yeah. four days was you know so I so that's nothing in comparison and for a backpacking trip that's extremely important is to carry that oh really yeah light I mean it food. had to be super light in yeah. in a canoe uh, you know you can carry a little extra weight but we were being we were gone for so long <laughs> that I didn't dare carry more than we needed right no yeah. and, and and we pack like I've got on my trips usually uh, you know half a dozen or maybe eight 17 year olds who have by that time they've been on several trips so they're usually pretty good at at this tripping thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you can see I make Wanigans. So, uh, I would like, I took brisket and stuff. Yeah. We eat like, a, yeah, like a full, full see, brisket that's my... a week and a half in because they're, they're hermetically sealed. So they don't really need to be refrigerated. Oh yeah. Um, and you know, things like that. Cause we, mm-hmm. I had all these kids to carry stuff. Yeah. Different, <laughs> and different right. trip, but, but anyway, so there's the food. What were we, what did well, that divert I, us I, I from? I do have another question, though. So yeah. did, oh, I mean, in preparation, say, with Jose, uh, did, did, <laughs> did you guys go canoeing, like in, like around Lake of the Isles, maybe, or do something to kind of let me tell you about what, let me Let me tell you about what preparation was yeah. like with Jose. Now, Jose lived 
he, he didn't really have a, a permanent place to live. He was kind of wandering around to different relatives' homes. He he would probably call Frogtown in St. Paul home uh, because he probably spent the most time living there as a kid. Um, so after Jose and I determined that we were going to do this trip together, I sort of didn't see him for a couple of weeks. And uh, when the date of the departure came, you know, I'd call him up, you know, several times and say, hey, did you get this? Did you get that? You really need to have this stuff, you know, <laughs> pack your clothes. And, you know, he really didn't own anything. So the day of the trip, he didn't show up. So I got on the phone. I called him. He's like, oh, oh, hey, bro. Oh, it's today. Oh, sorry, bro. Yeah, yeah. I'll, uh, I'll, get, I'll find a way over there. So two, three hours later, Jose uh, pulls up. A cloud of pot smoke, you know, comes out of the car. And uh, he's holding one thing, and it's a bag from Walmart where he stopped on the way from wherever he'd been to, to my house. And in his Walmart bag was two pairs of underwear and two T-shirts. And this is what he had prepared to take uh, to a uh, six-week trip to the subarctic. Oh, yeah. I'm just like thinking, oh, my God. He really did. This is really something. So, And had he ever been in a canoe? He had been in a canoe once uh, on like a school outing on the St. Croix. And him and his friend were like, effing around and they they paddled right past the landing where they were supposed to get out and i guess it was a big disaster yeah and that that was his entirety of his experience in a canoe okay so i really want people to read this book <laughs> because because you're talking about it in the book oh yeah oh all of this is yeah. in the book yeah yeah it and and for me reading it i mean i'm a i'm a pretty serious packer you know, and I, I, I've got it down where I don't really make lists. I can do it in my head. I've got a, I've got a packed Wanigan at home right now. If someone wanted to go on a cold canoe trip in, mm-hmm. in December here, I could do it. Right. You know, like in two hours. Yeah, yeah, I could be ready to go. I got my gear. You know, it's it's pretty well regimented at this point. Right. The idea of showing up with a Walmart bag and nothing more. So, it just, I love it. So during this, all right. So you guys get in the canoe. You guys are going. I mean, mm-hmm. and I can only you know, say like the can the Grand Canyon thing that I did, you know, like once I got to the bottom, mm-hmm. I mean, I kind of freaked out the first night because I was like, holy shit, there is no going. I mean, it took all day to get to our destination. Right. I was like, yeah, man, I'm like, I can't just say ah, I'm going to go back up, you know? No. You because, know, so, right. So like <laughs> how far along were you before Jose actually, did he ever turn around and say like, holy shit, dude, like. Well, every five minutes he was saying that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you answered it that way because... Yeah, because I'm wondering, like, did it take, like, five hours into it or or Let let me tell you how we started because I I think this this will illustrate. So we put in at the the Red River there, and uh, it was raining when we started, and my friends who had brought us out there were kind of eager to get back on the road and get home. And... because I don't know this, like when you go in, I mean, is there houses on each side of the river? Like, do you see people? It, it depends where you are. Um, at certain places, yes. Yeah. Um, of course, the Red River is a river that has uh, horrific floods very, fairly frequently. Yep. So some places you don't see anything. In some places, people have managed to maintain homes you know, okay. closer to the riverbanks. Yep. Okay. But generally, you just see trees and mud. Yep. Yeah, I mean, isn't it uh, my understanding of the Red River... And, and other rivers in northern Minnesota like that, when they're through the prairie, mm-hmm. 
they're generally, you know, six, eight feet sunken down into the prairie kind of, yep. or, or more. And you, all you would see would be sort of the mud oh, the walls. Banks. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and the occasional bridge. So, so the mud itself, like maybe on day two or three, uh, we were, we had been cooking lunch in the canoe because you couldn't get out. Uh, except at very particular places because okay. the mud would you would just sink knee deep at best and you're not going to sit there and have a, a picnic right you know but jose was like he'd go on strike <laughs> and he'd be like I, i'm not putting my paddle in the water for you know once more until we have lunch so i'm like okay we'll just fire up the stove and let's make some mac and cheese or something so one day like day three he's like no we got to go to shore and we're going to cook lunch all right, buddy. You know, I couldn't stop him, but I thought he'd learn a lesson. So we're standing there knee deep in mud cooking on our camp stove. And he's just like, man, forget this. <laughs> so every once in a while, he'd make a plan and kind of like say the quiet part out loud. Like when we get to Winnipeg, I'm calling my homegirl and she's going to come up here and, and rescue me. Right. So I'm constantly making plans to like counter these things and get him past the areas where he could be rescued because there's a lot, most of the places we go past Winnipeg have no roads mm -hmm. and no one's going to be, he, he wouldn't be able to meet up with anybody past that point. Right. So that so, was really the time when I had to get him yeah. in and out of there without any damage. Yeah. And, and so your question of like, well, yes. And then now my question is when did he finally just surrender and say, mm. I'm, I'm in it. Okay. So, because I know my point, it was that first night I was like, okay, I'm just going to, but I, you know, I'm only four days down. So, yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, so let's say we'd been on the, on the river for, for four weeks and Jose had stubbornly clung to his, his, his urban persona, you know, all the way throughout. We'd be in some small town and there'd be some, you know, young high school girl jogging by and be like, you know, hey, baby, come talk to Poppy. I'm like, dude, no. It's mean, <laughs> just not going to work. Right. No, not here, bro. This, you know, this little different paradigm. You know? Right, right. So, uh, you know, like I say, about a month in, we're north of Winnipeg and we're in a place where it's starting to get cold. You know, it's, it's July, but it gets cold early up there. We can feel the fall in the air and there's black flies everywhere. And he comes out of the tent one night and he's wearing his, you know, we had gotten him some other clothes on the way to the river, stopped it at a store and went shopping for him. My, some of the friends I was with also had brought things and provided it for him. So he, he had good outdoor gear available, but he just kind of refused to use it. One night uh, when it was cold and really, really thick with flies, he comes out of the tent. He's wearing his, his earth-toned, you know, khaki pants and his, uh, his, his nice fleece, you know, hoodie. And a baseball cap that had a built-in fly net. He had it down over his oh, head. Nice. And he was he had made the transition. He's like, okay, I'm going to adapt. And now I'm, I understand yeah. why you guys wear this shit. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It's not because you want to like look like some white dorks. No. It's it, because it's functional. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when you answered his question of like, how often do you do you look forward and think like, oh shit, why did I do this or whatever? And it, it really is every five minutes. And that's true. I, that's true. I think almost every time you're on a trip, or at least that's what my experience has been is, uh, once you get past the last kind of point of civilization, or you know that 
point You're, of any return, right? There like, is no return. Yeah. yeah I mean, it, so like on the, on a trip like the Hayes River, once you leave Norway House, you know that you could get extracted at Oxford and you might be able to get extracted at Knee Lake, mm-hmm. right? But, but it, the distance between where you are and where you're, you would need to be to get extracted is, is so great that you don't really feel like you're safe until you're paddling, until you see that town in sight. Mm-hmm. Then, then you've got a momentary bit of safety, and the next thing you know, you're leaving that. Yeah. And you're saying, well, we're just going to keep on going. And then once you get past Knee Lake, that's a whole different thing because then there is nothing. There are no up. more lakes. It's just rapids. Rapids and, and not, a, not a lick of civilization. No, no people. No. Um, so that, that feeling, though, um, is something that can really empower you because when you realize that it's just the two of you out there and that no one's going to do anything for you. It's just you guys have to rely on each other. Jose and I got to the point where, um, I, I mean, we could. I think he could always rely on me, but we got to the point where I could really rely on him as well. He became, on that trip, an expert paddler. He became an excellent bow paddler. Had to have. Uh, we, we survived some things that we probably had no business even attempting. We just got really, I would say, a bit cocky because... We had, there's a point where you're just doing rapids after rapid all day long, every day for like, you know, eight, nine days straight. It's just rapids all day long. And oh my gosh. I know exactly where you're talking about. Big, because, scary water. Yeah. Because I've paddled that river. Yeah. There's a, there's a unique spot. And I think it, I think it's shortly after Knee Lake, right? Where it, it comes down. A, you just know that you're going down a big hill. Did you see any of the bales from that, um, that expedition, they did the York boat trip. Did you find any of their lost bales? I don't recall that. Okay, so so PBS, someone documented a trip uh, where they took a traditional York boat and mm-hmm. they filled it with artificial, they're bales of hay basically, but uh, they were the same weight as a bale of furs would have been when they were using that oh, yeah. river during, route. During the fur trade, yeah. Yeah, so they were kind of recreating the trip and uh they didn't end up making it to york factory with a single bale and i think they had done it in maybe 2001 and uh so we were there in 2003 and we found that stretch of rapids where you're coming out of knee lake and you're going down this this you can kind of see it winding out i remember just seeing one spot where you're like wow we're here and someday in the future, we'll be way down there. Right, down there. Way yeah. down there. You're sliding. It's, it's kind of like sledding because you're literally, you're in a canoe. It's a giant luge. The canoe might as well be a sled. Are you hitting And the rocks? water might as well right. be. Oh, my gosh. trying to no. dodge the rocks? I mean, what does this mean? So that that exactly. part of the river, and, oh, yeah. you know, I, I knew I was going <laughs> to. You're I, dodging rocks. Yeah. It, that part of the river is, um, you know, you say you got cocky, but. That area, there's not a place to pull off right, and, and right. portage around anyway. So you, right. you're sort of forced by the nature of the river itself to, you just go. to do that. Yeah, and that's, right. if you ask my boys, so I took the trip with one other counselor and then four kids. It was the smallest trip I'd, or, you know, group I'd ever taken. Right, wow. And uh, I'm still close with all of those boys. And that's where I, I dubbed the uh, fuck it, shoot it. Is, <laughs> so fuck it, shoot it is what we said because there's nothing... You look at it and you're like, you know what? 
there's nothing we can do about this. Right. It is what it is. Yeah. So you either look at it and say, okay, or you just go. Yeah. I'm <laughs> fucked either way. Right. Like, like I'm going to have to paddle down. So was down Jose this. scared? Oh, let me, let me tell you. I'm yeah. scared just thinking about it. <laughs> I mean, I was scared before the yeah, trip. Were you scared? I mean, before the trip, that's the part of the trip I was scared of was those last this. few days. Had you taken this before? I had never gone on any of the rivers that we traveled on during that trip, but I was a very experienced canoeist. I've been a canoe guide. Um, I canoed um, starting at age 11. I started canoe tripping with in summer camps. What and camp, I had taken I taken a thirty and a forty five day trip previously. Okay. Yep. Uh, camp Minogen. Oh yeah, yep. Yeah, YMCA Camp Minogen up on West Bearskin Lake on the yep. edge of the Boundary Waters. Yeah, so I was I was very experienced, but you know when you're thinking of being in northern Manitoba on some of these rivers, they're just they're they're wild places. Yeah. And I, I I will say that although I'd done some big rapids in the past. I had never done anything where you're just looking at it for eight, nine, ten days in a row, and there's no turning back, and you you have no choice. But so, thinking about that was was scary in advance. But we got to a point where I started to to enjoy it, like the adrenaline rush. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So one one time we were on this gigantic rapids, and about halfway down it, it was probably half a mile long. Halfway down it, there is this point where there's only one way to go. And it is this whirlpool that is defined by these two giant rocks that kind of come up on either side and sort of almost meet at the top. Uh So you can't go left or right. You have to go through the whirlpool. And inside the whirlpool, there's a standing wave that was four or five feet tall. So you have to go into this swirling section, (laughs) go through this thing, this wave of water, and somehow you know hope to god you make it out the other side so there was this point literally where jose went first and he may as well have been in another universe we were sitting in the same canoe but he was on the other side of this thing wow and if we had wanted to talk to each other there was no way we could uh but anyway it was you know it it was very quick i went through it i got water in my eyes up my nose but and all in the canoe we had the canoe was covered, but still we had probably six inches of water in the canoe after that. Made it through, got down to a calm part at the bottom of the rapids, and I did the old, you know, hold my my paddle up above my head and and scream and and scream out joyously, and um, I'm like woohoo, feeling so great. And Jose turns around and he looks really upset, <laughs> and he shakes his head and says to me white people yeah <laughs> no shit good for you jose so, uh, so you know he stayed mad for a while and i'm starting to think like okay well why did he express his anger in racial terms okay and i can understand he was scared he was upset whatever but what about this was racial so finally i asked him i was used to him giving me shit about you know him being native me being white you know whatever <laughs> I, I didn't mind that, and I also didn't mind him being angry about this, but I wanted to understand it. And so he said to me, look, you know, you had that was fun for you. You like adrenaline. He's like, you know, we, we Indians, he said, we wake up in the morning and we don't know how we're going to feed our family. We don't know if we're going to get put out by the sheriff that day. We don't know if our mom has smoked up all the rent. And we wake up with an adrenaline rush, and it's not fun. Yeah, it sucks sucks so he associated adrenaline with yep. all the bad things in his past 
And I associated adrenaline with, hell yeah, we're still here. Yeah. So it was fun for me, but horrible for him. And right. it was really a great lesson for me in understanding That's an interesting how perspective. different people of different backgrounds experience mm -hmm. these kinds of things. That's awesome. And so uh, we've got like a, a river like that, your experience and my experience are, are going to be different because it's never the same. I've taken a, a few rivers twice and you think like, oh, you know, in fact, you mark it on your map. Like people will make the mistake of saying, shoot river left, you know, mm -hmm. uh, avoid obstruction on right, you know, whatever it is. And you get back to the, I, I like, I took the Savant river twice and, uh, you get back to the same spot and I've got this vivid memory of what happened the last time I was here. And you look at it and you're like, wow, this is absolutely not the same place. Mm -mm. Completely different. No. So, uh, and, and you took, uh, covered canoes. Is that like cook custom sewing their boats? I actually, um, bought, uh, you know, we, we, we were more budget conscious. Yeah. This was kind of a spur of the moment thing. You know, we decided to go put it together and, and went, I had a lot, I had most of the gear, but a canoe cover was something I needed. And I found at Midwest Mountaineering, um, a cover that attached to my canoe with Velcro. Yep. So, you know, basically what you do is, is you put the Velcro strips on the side of the canoe, the cover is waterproof and it sits over the top of the canoe Velcro to the side. And then there are two holes, uh, for the paddlers to sit in and inside the holes, there's this extra material that you can really pull up under your armpits and cinch it up so that on oh, a, on a yeah. cold day, you're warm under there, uh, you're dry under there. And it really kind of turns the canoe into a kayak. Yeah. yeah, it's like a spray skirt on a kayak. So you guys never... I've never had one. I've never... I've All of those trips I've taken yeah. uh, have been in uncovered, you know, open canoes. Completely so no recommended. Yeah. It's really cool. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like well, Jose didn't fall out ever, or you guys flip anything oh, or do? Well, let's let's yeah, let's, let's let's rewind this yeah. tape. <laughs> well, right. You know what? We should we should also probably, well let's, let's talk about this when we come back. Yeah. We can do that. Let's yeah, do we that. can do that because okay. uh, I, I think I know the answer to this. Okay, <laughs> all, right. all right, we'll be back. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. We love comments and feedback, so go ahead and let us have it. If you'd like to learn more about Andalin and other legacy projects, visit the website at andalin.app or kineticlegacy.us. Take care. All right, you guys, we're doing it. So All second right. second half here, thanks for... Uh, <laughs> Tuning in. Break. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, John. So uh, my question is, uh, Jose, I mean, so did you guys flip or did Jose fall out? You know, the amazing thing is when we got to the point where you would think that we would have some disasters uh, and fall out and end up in the water, we miraculously didn't. Um, where we did have a problem was on the very first day. So on the very first day, we packed up our canoe, and like I mentioned earlier, it was completely overloaded because you know, we put this thing together in a hurry and didn't have everything well organized. We had everything we need needed times about five. Plus, of course. I, I had a, a buddy with, with us, uh, a guy named Chris Coach, who was you know, previously, he would have been the natural person for me to bring on this trip because we had done so much paddling together in the past. He was, of course, involved with uh, 
his his career and all of the things that people get people get sidetracked yeah, by. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Like, right. Life, the serious like, yeah, stuff, yeah. careers, and families, <laughs> and you know, all, right. all those distractions. Yeah. Uh, so he couldn't come, um, but he did um, come along with us for those first three days to kind of be a mentor to Jose and teach him his role as, as the, the bowman in the canoe. Okay. So, so Chris was sitting in the middle. He's surrounded by all this gear and we're paddling away down the river. And in short order, we come to a low head dam. Uh, a low head dam is basically a bar of concrete across the river that just sits there. It's fixed. Sometimes it, the river, when the river's high, you wouldn't even notice it being there. When the river's low, you would have to portage around it. In this case, it was probably uh, 8 to 10 inches beneath the water surface, and it was creating a, a, a rapids beneath it. Mm -hmm. So uh, my friend Chris, coach, uh, decided that or thought that it would be great training for Jose to go ahead and run these rapids. And I thought, you know, I've, I've tried to do low head dams before, and they can be really, really sketchy. You never really know exactly, you know, what's going to happen on the other side. For whatever reason, they create uh, really unreliable kind of water movements and currents. And apparently the locals were aware of that because there was a guy in a red truck just like sitting off to the side at a, at a boat landing um, watching us. And <laughs> uh, Chris gets out uh, of, the, of the middle position and he carries a couple of packs. But we're still carrying a lot of the gear in the canoe. And we go down and we go over and Jose gets scared and he does what a lot of novices would do, which was he grabbed one side of the canoe with both hands. Big no-no. Which means you're pushing on one side of the canoe and now the canoe's unstable. Mm -hmm. Suddenly a wave of water is allowed to come over the gunnels into the boat. Now we're really unstable. Next thing you know, we're, we're tipping over and we're swimming. And we had things like, we had, we had a, a bag of apples that was open in the canoe. We had about 12 apples. They all floated out into the water. All of our gear floated out. I lost my rain gear. Um, we managed to corral up everything else and get it to shore somehow and clean up and, and, and get on our way. But um, for the next three or four days, we were picking apples up off the surface of the water. <laughs> wow. <laughs> All the way to Grand Forks, we were picking yeah. up apples. Yep. Yeah, yep. You'd, you'd be paddling, and there's an apple. Right. Is that, be one the, uh, is that the only time you capsized? That on was that? the only time in the okay. entire trip. And you didn't, so. you didn't swamp because you had the the spray skirt. That definitely helped us from swamping. So the time when we did get a bunch of water in the boat, we probably got less than half of what we would have gotten in the boat um, because we had the skirt on. Yeah, yeah. Because I I can pretty much say that I don't think I've taken a single trip. Well, no, I've taken a couple of trips where I don't think I've capsized or swamped, but it's pretty, it, certainly every trip someone has, mm -hmm. you know, and usually multiple times. And a three-man canoe is always tippy. Yeah, three-man canoe with a ton of, with, with way too much gear in it and taking a low head dam, which even empty would have been ill-advised yeah so so when we did get get over on the other side of that dam and get to shore and everything and we looked up and we could see this guy sitting in that red truck he had a long beard you know like a, a railroad conductor's cap and he was just chortling he's <laughs> like dumbasses yeah totally that's what he wanted that was what he's sitting there hoping to see 
So and, when this <laughs> happens, like how deep is this river at this point? Like, I it's, mean, could you stand in it or? No, we yeah. were, it was definitely over our heads. Okay. All yeah. Right. So you, you asked the question about water depth a couple of times. And just to give you a sense, um, you know, the, the, the Red River isn't very deep. It's got kind of a narrow channel, narrow, shallow channel that runs through the prairie. Um, but there was no time, I think, on the entire trip, basically, where we where it wasn't kind of over our heads where we were paddling. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think just generally speaking, uh, you never know how deep it is. And it's almost always over your head. Mm-hmm. But uh, when it's not, it almost becomes more scary mm-hmm. because that's usually when the water, it, you're in a rapids at that point. Right. And there's boulders. Yeah. And there's there's all these, you know, you're flying down something and there's these obstructions that hurt you when you hit them. Right. You, you might fly off your seat. It might, you, it might you damage your boat. Like a helmet, too? <laughs> no. We had no helmet, no. <laughs> right. Well, that's what that's what people do. That's what kayakers, kayakers would definitely wear a helmet. Yeah. Right. yeah I've okay. never seen anyone out there paddling with a helmet. <laughs> not, in a, not in a canoe. <laughs> no. no. Uh, and I, I have, have I've never come across an actual low-head dam, but I've I've hit them, natural ones, out in certain places sure. and that is a freaky it it's different yeah uh, it creates a different kind of current it does yeah there's a hydraulic that's just bizarre kind of so so i was wondering did you guys when you went to um hudson bay did you bring any kind of firearm for possible polar bears uh not until the third trip so i the i paddled the Hayes and the uh churchill without a firearm and i got absolutely yelled at by some Canadians in Churchill, Manitoba. Canadians who make it very difficult to own a firearm. Yeah, to begin that's with. true. <laughs> that's true. Um, but the third trip, the Wolverine, which is uh, flows south from way up north. We we, we were about uh, maybe fifty or eighty miles shy of the border with Nunavut, and uh, that flows south into the Seal and then out to the Bay. Mm. So that was a yeah. beautiful trip. Cool. God, that's a great trip. I'd like to go. Don't up there take sometime. it, anyone. No one, <laughs> no one goes up there. We were the. I, I think the pilot that dropped us off uh, was really excited to take us up there because he said, "Boy, people just do not paddle this river. This is." And we found no sign of. Oh, that's humans, so cool. Really. Like the, that's awesome. The fire. The few fire rings we did find, mm-hmm. you could tell were twenty, thirty years old. You know, or whatever. Right. Yeah. Who so, knows? Because, you know, native people have lived up there forever. Oh, it's, I mean, the there's a uh, an abandoned uh, outpost from, you know, I think it's probably abandoned in the 50s or 60s, but they, that's one of those areas where they forced them to move to the reservations. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's a pretty dark history with that. Oh, sure. Up there in that their, area. Their history is just as bad as ours when it yeah. comes to... Uh, to how, how native people have been treated same they did the same things forced yeah forced them into different areas took the kids forced them not to uh live a native culture all mm-hmm. the same things that all the same things yeah so, yeah so when, when when we were going up into uh that area of course like you said everybody would suggest bring a firearm because right. there are polar bears and they have been known to attack humans I was terrified. I can admit yeah, it. Yeah, every last pretty much. Yeah, right? the, well, especially the last couple hundred miles when yeah. you're you know you're in ter- in polar bear territory, and you're just thinking like sometimes you're especially when you get to the deltas, uh, you're paddling through these channels and there's brush 
that's maybe six or eight feet tall, a perfect concealment for a polar right. bear. Yeah. And you're thinking at any minute, something could blast out of there and just, yeah, just I'm wondering, eat us all. Like how did, how this happens? Like, is he like just right at the water's edge or is he swimming? <laughs> I mean, do you see his head? Well, like those, all of a sudden, well we, would, we probably only know from seeing it on TV because <laughs> right. neither of us ran into a polar bear. Luckily, yeah. <laughs> luckily, but uh, Jose and I, we didn't leave here with a firearm, but when we got to Grand Forks, you know, just south of the border, I knew we wouldn't be able to buy one in Canada. So that was our last chance. And there happened to be a sporting goods store right on the edge of the river. Mm-hmm. You could walk there. We actually could see it from the water. So, you know, we parked our <laughs> canoe and walked over to the sporting goods store. And like Michael Moore and uh, Bowling for Columbine, yeah, when he walks yeah. out of that bank with a gun, yeah, that's how I felt buying a gun. I'd never purchased a gun before. And you made the absolute wrong choice. I mean, maybe right choice for you, but I love that you got a 20 gauge. <laughs> yeah, got a shotgun. Uh, <laughs> Which is good. The, the guy the guy at the store suggested it. He said, you know, buy slugs. And yeah. uh, so we, we, I bought this shotgun. And of course, as soon as I brought it out, <laughs> Jose didn't come into the store because we, we thought somehow that might mess up the transaction. <laughs> Because he kind of had like a juvenile record and stuff, and who knew? Oh, so yeah. uh, we were kind of novices at the firearms, the legal <laughs> firearms game. I think Jose right. knew the, the street firearms game, oh, perhaps. Um, and he wanted to to shoot it, of course. So I yeah. had to, I had to keep the gun from him. I had to like keep the slugs buried deep in my sleeping bag at night. He just had this gun fever, you know. Oh yeah. As a as a you know teenage kid, right? Just kind of uh, you know. Well, that's yeah. I that's kind I of mean, think of it. I let all the kids shoot shoot my gun, and I brought a shotgun too. I brought mm-hmm. a I brought a twelve gauge. Um, the only reason I say that's the wrong choice, I don't even think my twelve gauge is really going to be terribly effective against. You know, it's not that you couldn't take down a polar bear with a twenty or a twelve gauge slug. You probably can, mm-hmm. but in if a polar bear is truly coming at you, you might be better off just throwing the gun at him and running. Right? You know, like, <laughs> Instead of pissing him off. Yeah. I, I mean, I just don't know that it's really. Yeah. So, uh. so, you know, before I left here, this is in the book, um, you know, there, there, there used to be a canoe shop over in lower town, St. Paul. Oh, and I, Northwest I know, canoe. I don't know Hal, but I've yeah. been to that shop to pick up gunnels. I loved reading that. Part. Yeah. So, so Hal, uh, Al, the previous owner, uh, he gave me a lot of advice. You know, he was this old kind of curmudgeonly owner of this sort of underground canoe shop. It, it, they operated out of a loading dock exactly in, a, in a warehouse <laughs> over in Lower Town. Underground. I love canoe it because I know shop. this. I like you're you're. I'll read your little passage when I, <laughs> because it's the one thing that I marked in the book. So so when I was sitting there talking to to him about this trip, he's like telling me what kind of gun to buy, and then he's like. When you shoot that bear, as if it were inevitable, right? <laughs> you don't just shoot it once. You shoot it with all the ammo you have. <laughs> Load, reload, shoot, reload, shoot. Right. You know, never assume that that bear is dead. Oh my god! So uh, you know, well, they're big bears. Oh my god, they're well, and we're food to them. That's all. Yeah, we're just another animal out there in there. Right in, in the in, food in, chain. Yep. Yeah, they're they're one of the few. Uh, creatures on the planet that that actually will hunt humans like, so did jose get hunt. to shoot the gun i i never let jose shoot the gun <gasps> you didn't I, I probably should have i don't know so <laughs> well, what's we didn't have it for very long that's the oh that's, that's the right thing. that's right I, yeah that's the story i was going to tell but yeah. why don't you go ahead and read the passage you have open sure and we'll get back to that okay yeah um well and i want to talk about i want to get into your journalism and actually the the fact that you've worked in native communities because i it's 
really interesting to me as well. So, I mean, I love, I, I could talk canoe trip all day long. Sure. But, sure. Um, so this is you, uh, with Hal and I love the Midwest canoe story because I did meet Hal around the time that, you know, maybe a few years prior to this and he was curmudgeonly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he, he took pity on me because I was actually taking the time to replace gunnels. Yes. And, and so for him, the fact that I was a young guy willing to make major repairs to canoes. Canoe? Yeah. Four or $500 repair. Gunnel. Yeah. What the, is that? The gunnel is, uh, in our case, there's, there's metal, wood and plastic, but, but plastic gunnels, it's the, it's kind of the two inch wide or so flat spot. It's the, the it's the railing along the edges of the canoe. Okay. Yep. And, and when you take those, when you take those boats on these punishing trips, if a kid, and this has happened several times on trips I've been on, um, sometimes they'll get wrapped backwards around a rock. So mm-hmm. they get folded in half. And if you're lucky enough to be able to pry them off, which there's kind of an art and a technique to that. I've done it several times, but uh, they will pop back into shape and you can paddle them out. So the the Royal X boats, it's too bad they don't make Royal X anymore. Mm-hmm. But yeah. uh, they, they will do that if you've got plastic gunnels on there. But the boat gets really noodly after oh. that happens. And the gunnel itself is actually busted inside. I think there's maybe a metal rib in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you need to replace that, and then it'll firm the boat up again. So so I've made those repairs a couple of times. But anyway, you're, uh, you're talking to Hal. Mm-hmm. Hal went on to explain that paddling the nearly 500-mile stretch from Lake Winnipeg to the sea on the Hayes River was, quote, like climbing Mount Everest, except that far more people summit Everest every year than reach Hudson Bay on the Hayes. It's the crown jewel of the canoeing world. The rest of Severide's route, the 1,500 miles leading to the Hayes, it's really just a driveway to the north end of, of Lake Winnipeg. So I, I love that because I, I don't think of these trips. For me, it was kind of second nature. I started at camp when I was 21 years old. I came up through the ranks. I took a shorter trip and then the longer trip. And, and I was in and amongst other people who had gone on these types of trips and who could train me. So it didn't seem like it was something extraordinary. But now looking back on it and being a few years removed from it, uh, the last trip I took was in 2012. And I, I'm thinking, man, it really was pretty extraordinary to, to have paddled that many thousands of miles and, you know, not not tooting my own horn. I'm just saying it's, it, I only now I'm realizing what a crazy adventure that was. <laughs> yes. Oh, uh, so would you guys like to hear what happened to, uh, to our gun? Sure. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, so we're, we're paddling and on, on the Hayes river or on the red river in, in Severide's day. So, uh, that was really the only guidebook I had was something that was written in 1930 in Severide's day, there was a customs post on the Red River because they used to have passenger travel on paddle boats up in that area. So they'd stop at the customs post, you know, show their ID or whatever they had to do in those days and, and get on with it. Uh, when Severide did, they again, they had to talk to the customs agent and so forth. But when we got up there, we could see that the customs post uh, that was on the highway it was about a mile. We could see there they had these gigantic lights, you know, so we could see those from a really far distance. It was a couple of miles through a swamp from where we were. Where we were, there was nothing. There was no yeah. welcome to Canada sign. There, there was absolutely no indication that we were entering Canada. Um, 
I kind of figured we were because there was a railroad bridge there and, and I knew that we were getting close. And so I figured that railroad bridge might be, might be kind of the marker. Um, I was right. And as <laughs> soon as we got into Canada, Jose starts paddling to shore. I'm like, what are you doing, man? He's like, you promised me that once we're in Canada, uh, we could go to a bar because, you know, he was 19 and he wanted <laughs> yeah. to have his first legal drink. Right. Jose wasn't a drinker, but he wanted to have, like like a lot of kids around here, yeah. wanted yeah. to be able to go get a legal drink at a yep. bar, show his ID and get served. So uh, I'm like, no, dude, we're not stopping in the very first town when we just kind of snuck into the country and say, hey, you know, you go, you know, start drinking. <laughs> So I love that little bit of criminality in that too. <laughs> like international criminality yeah, too. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, a little bit a little bit of the ways on, uh we meet some fishermen on the river and there's some Canadian dudes and they offer us a beer and Jose turns it down because again he wanted to get it legally in a bar. And so they tell us, you know, there's uh, up up ahead, about five miles there's a bridge, and three miles off to the east there's a, a bar. Um, okay. So we get up there and we set up our tent under the bridge is what we were doing on the Red River because that was the only place where the mud was hardened enough to actually put a tent. Sure. So we were sleeping under bridges that whole, that whole stretch. Mm-hmm. Uh, after he set up the tent, Jose's, Jose um, pulls on a, a sweatshirt and starts walk, gets up on the bridge and starts walking. <laughs> He's going to town <laughs> like, for that drink. See you later. I, like, yep. I get up there, I catch up to him. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? He's like, I'm going to the bar. I'm like, how do you even know there is one? You know, they said, you know, roughly, vaguely it was out there, but, you know, squinting into the distance on the prairie, you know, there's maybe a twinkle of a light somewhere, but there's no indication that there was a town ahead or anything. So he stayed and the next morning he got up determined to go ahead. So I'm like, all right, dude, I have to let him go. I had made him several promises if he would go on this trip with me and keep going. One was that he could have a legal drink and two was that he could meet native girls. <laughs> okay. All right. Solid. <laughs> All right. Yep. Because he, uh, he only likes uh, to date native girls. And yep. I knew that we were going through all these native communities and all right, you can have a drink or whatever, and you can also meet some girls. So now we're in Canada. Like it's, it's, like it's just going to be so easy, you know, like, hey, we'll swing it, grab a drink. Oh, God. It's time to pay up. We've crossed yeah. the border. It's time right. to make good. So I'm like, all right, so uh, I'm going to stay with the stuff. You go ahead and find your drink and meet me back here when you're done. I figured it'd be a couple hours. As I'm sitting there, he's got a walkie-talkie. I've got a walkie-talkie. He doesn't have a phone. Um, And their range is about, I don't know, two miles. So I try him because it's starting to rain. And it's even though I'm under the bridge, it's raining sideways. (laughs) You know, the the bridge is not stopping. So it's not miserable. Sunny day. No, it was a slanty rain and it was smashing me hard. <laughs> oh. So Jose's not answering. So I figure he's gone further than two miles. Um, I'm going to go in after him. So I pull on my rain gear, go up on the road. A couple cars pass and they just splash me and they don't stop. I'm figuring like, who wants to stop and let a wet dog into the car? <laughs> right. Oh, and I imagine you smell great at that I'm point. sure. So <laughs> off in the distance, after a couple of miles walk, I could see some buildings. And then as I got closer, I could see this little figure kind of like weaving back and forth across the roads. And that was Jose. And I get him on the radio. And he's like, oh, hey, bro. He's like, I'm super crunk. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I was drinking at Barney's, which is the name of the local bar there. He's like, 
the waitress was smoking, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. So I catch up to him. It's still pouring. And I'm like, let's go back inside and wait out the rain. And uh, Canadian Idol was on the TV. The waitress was very attractive. <laughs> and uh, they actually, I'm a vegetarian. They actually had veggie burgers. So we sat, have a beer, have a veggie burger. It was pretty nice. Um, you know, an hour or two pass and we walk back to our camp. And then from a distance, I can see our gear, which had been carefully covered in a tarp. I had seen, I could see it had been messed with. Oh yeah. Somebody had pulled the tarp up Yeah. and I'm like, Oh no, what, what, what's happening? You know, what, what have they taken? I look through everything. We have every single thing, every single thing we need, except the gun. Oh, guns, which are difficult to get, especially if you're an American in Canada, uh, could, could really fetch something on, on the black market. And so, now I had a, a conundrum. Do I go ahead and, and, and call the police and report the stolen gun, which is in my name, and who knows what's going to be done with it? Or do we just paddle on like nothing ever happened? <laughs> and as we're considering this, we hear uh, uh, somebody up on the bridge above us call down, hey, you guys want to use my phone? <laughs> this guy, we look up, there's this, and I, rec- I didn't recognize the guy. I didn't know him, but I could tell from his accent and from his look, he was Ojibwe. We didn't know it at the time, but we were on a First Nations reserve. Sure. Okay. And the guy says to Jose, hey, you native? And I was like, it's like yeah, I'm, I'm Sue from the States. And he's like, huh. And Jose's like, yeah, we're the people who killed Custer. <laughs> and the guy looks down and is like, yeah, I think I heard of you guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god oh my god oh, so the oh, guy offers to let us use his phone I, I i call i call the police and report the gun and we go through this whole thing we're dragged back to the border mm-hmm. and we have to check in and do the whole customs thing and we don't so, so what do you mean so do the police show up <laughs> do they show up the police show up right there riverside okay they yeah. didn't know they were in can they the Canadians didn't know you were in Canada, let alone you got your gun stolen right away. Well, when we made the call, we just reported the gun stolen. We didn't report having smuggled in, you know, ourselves <laughs> right, into the right. country <laughs> along with, with, the, with the, gun. the gun. Yeah. <laughs> so we went back, and as we're sitting at the border post, they interview us separately. Yeah. They're taking this very seriously. And after we've been both interviewed and they're deciding what to do with us, Jose puts on his big sunglasses and he's kicking back and he's eyeing like the girl at the foreign exchange, you know, counter, you know, talking (laughs) about, you know, how she's looking at him and how she wants him and then saying, hey, bro, you know, I know we're going back. This is it. This is the end. You know, he says, if I'm going to go out, I'm going out like a pimp. Yeah. So finally, they uh, they make a decision. They have us kind of stand up at the desk, and a whole bunch of these uh, these big mounties, you know, and they're wearing these bulletproof vests. They all look massive, but the biggest one of all was like a four hundred pound dude with a big beard, and he's wearing you know the big green outdoor ranger gear, and yeah. he looks like he represents the the great north. And apparently, this guy had some kind of theatrical training because. He went into an oratory and he's like, 
in the great tradition of explorers like Marco Polo, and he goes down this whole list of explorers, and then he throws in the name, and Eric Severide kind of yeah. says with a wink, yeah. he says, we of the Canadian government throw open the doors to the great north for your great adventure to the sea. Wow. And they were just totally, you know, they bought into our story. I mean, we're telling the truth, but they understood it. They appreciated it. And they let us go and they drove us back to our canoe and, and we were on our way. way. I, you know, that is, I love that part of the book. Amazing. Too. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that is. I have a, a long history with uh, the Canadians at border crossings. Mm-hmm. The I follows, there's a gal on the Canadian side when you're entering uh, who just does not like me. She's never liked me. She's threatened me so many times. <laughs> I'm going to keep you from coming into Canada. Where's your work permit? I don't need a work permit, I, but I'm happy to buy one. Well, why didn't you buy one? You know, just, it, it's gone on for years. I haven't been through that crossing uh-huh. in a long time, so yeah. not sure if she's still there. Do you remember her name? I do not, but uh, you know, over the course of probably 15, 16 years of going through that crossing 10 times a year, uh, wow. We definitely got to know each other sure. very well. I like wave from outside, like she's going to pull me in. She didn't she dig, she me. didn't dig your youth work mission. You know, the thing is we were a nonprofit, yeah. the camp I worked for and, and for probably seven years running, I bought a work permit. Mm-hmm. Uh, despite when I, when I'd go through the crossing at Bawabic not Bawabic, uh, what's the one in North Dakota? Uh, oh, Drayton? No. North of there. God, I can't remember the name of it. Anyway, uh, when I'd go through other crossings, they'd laugh. Like, you don't need a work permit. Uh-huh. You, that's not... <laughs> well, we, we were never going to ask. <laughs> yeah, and, and they'd say, oh, you got Mary over at I Falls, I bet. Or they knew who oh, she... You know, okay. they're like, yeah, she's, she's she a just stickler. does that, yeah. you know? Uh, but anyway, I love, I love crossing the border, but it, <laughs> they're, yeah, they're, but they're like, uh, I think that that is common... In the Canadians, kind of like my British friends, that theatrical part, uh-huh. like where they, if given the opportunity, they like to bust that out. Yeah, they, they, they not only do the job, but they play the part. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they, they take it all very seriously. And they're generally really, uh, from my experience, really like good hearted people who love their job at the border or something. Right. You know? Yeah. So it, it, I, I loved that part of the book. Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a, it was a quintessential, I, I think, Canadian experience having these interactions with these people. Yeah. And as I think back on it, I think, you know, how generous of spirit they were. I mean, can you imagine if the tables were turned oh. and we were Canadians coming into the U.S. under similar circumstances? I, I doubt they'd... You'd, we probably would have been thrown in jail. Yeah, for sure. You know, you, for you a wouldn't while. get that reception. Absolutely not. No, you've, you've now... Paddled across the border into their country illegally, lost, lost your gun. gun. <laughs> yeah, and, lost gun. and now our gun is at large. Yeah, right. <laughs> and yeah, and you've got a you've got a kid, a nineteen year old native kid with a rap sheet. Yep. And and a and you know you allude to this in the book too. You're in your what forties at that point? Just about forty. Yep. Late thirties. So you got this you know, almost 20 year old with this 40 year old, that doesn't look suspicious in any weird way. Right. 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 And it's just the two of you on a, and his name is Jose. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Two of you on a six week canoe trip, eh? Uh You know, like (laughs) that doesn't make much sense. Right. I think maybe, you know, in the interviews that we did separately, they, they got a feel for 
I guess I think the spirit of the the trip and and they yeah. they probably I, kind of as Canadians they understood that. They know whether you're lying or not too. Yeah, they they can tell if yeah. you're you know you, you're a genuine and honest well, guy. Well, you did call <laughs> them too. You know, you did call them. Yeah, that's yeah. true. To report the exactly the gun, so right, we yeah. did the right thing. Right. Yeah. In the end. <laughs> yes. In the end. Ultimately. Yeah. So, uh, well, this I you know I really really could talk about this particular canoe trip all day long. Um, but we, I want to talk a little bit about your, your work just in general in the native community. It, it, you're, you're a white guy, you know, and you, you've been, uh, employed by native newspapers yes. and written, you know, I, how did that happen? I've done a lot of native youth work as well. Um, how did it happen? You know, it's, it's interesting. It's a really an evolution. I grew up in St. Louis park uh, with everything, you know, uh, a young person could ever need, uh, nice house, plenty of food, uh, whatever, you know, went to college, all that. Um, but from an early age, I had this sense that we didn't, I in particular, you know, you were as a kid, you're not able to really put this in context, but there was something wrong. We lived in this place but we had no connection to it. Mm-hmm. And I was constantly wondering, like, where am I? Who am I in relation to this place where I live? Is this just a is is, is the earth just generic mm-hmm. and we can just be anywhere and just kind of plug in like a Lego? Or do places have meanings? And do I just not know the meaning of this place because we are not from here? I'm a first generation America American. My mother is a, a Holocaust refugee. OK, um, probably one of the few Holocaust refugees remaining. Uh, She's in her eighties. And so she was just a child during the war. So she, her, her family fled prior or did she, she spend time? She lived through the war in France in hiding. Okay. Yeah. She's as a Jewish child, she grew up in a Catholic boarding school. That's right. And had to, you know, be non-Jewish. And she remembers lots of interactions with, Nazi security services who were coming specifically to her school to root out the hidden Jewish children, watching her friends get hauled away and never come back. And so, you know, needless to say, very traumatized and uh, passed on a lot of that trauma to her children. She had six of us. Sure. But so I think maybe part of receiving that trauma as a child was also saying, that's not the world we live in. That's not the world. That's not my reality. My reality is there's a creek here. There's trees. There's woods. There's a lake over there. We, we live near Cedar Lake. And what does this mean? And who am I in context with this place? And I'm just kind of being pretty confused. And I think as I grew up, I became more politically radical. Again, probably as a result of some of that childhood trauma that I was absorbing. I, I, I was very rebellious against my parents and against society in general. And moved towards punk rock. And after a few years of being really into the punk rock movement and thinking this is a revolution, I realized after a while, no, this is just a fashion and nothing's going to happen. So I started looking around. Now, by now, I'm like, uh, you know, going to college, looking around for, well, who do I align with? Who, who shares my values of, you know, we really need to radically change what's going on. And I thought, you know, the Native American people. Of course, they're not happy with the status quo. Uh, maybe I can find some kin- kinship and alliance with them. 
So I ended up taking a class at the University of Minnesota called um, Urban Indian Studies or something. Just a class that happened to be open in a haphazard way that I was signing up for classes right. in those days. Yep. And in the class, I learned a hell of a lot. But uh, I met a woman named Jane who uh, I thought was attractive and uh, kind of like met up with her after class one day. She was my future wife, also my future ex-wife. Um, but at the time I met her, she had a two-year-old daughter who is, was uh, Dakota. And she and I got together and I ended up uh, raising Allison and after, you know, just a short time, it occurred to both of us that we are two white people raising a native child and both of us being conscious of the whole history of uh, cultural genocide in the Native American world. Uh, we didn't think that was a good idea. Right. So we ended up uh, moving to the Rosebud Reservation in South Dakota. Now, the Rosebud Reservation is one of the most intimidating kind of visual landscapes that you could ever like think about moving into. But as I kind of stood on the edge of the, the town called Mission one day as we were looking around for housing, um, I thought, if this experience doesn't kill me, um, I'm never going to be able to turn back. It's going to change me forever. Right. I'm never going to be able to go you? back to being like a suburban kid from St. Mm -hmm. Louis Park. Right. How old were you? At the I time? was 24. Okay. And um, we found a, a, a little house. Uh, the architecture of the place called it a Sioux 400. It was a house that had been originally built by the government for Native people. Somehow this white man got his hands on it and rented it to us. And uh, through that experience and through meeting people and making relationships, um, I started to see that there was so much going on, so much injustice going on right in front of my eyes, right out my front door that no one was talking about. I thought the whole world should know about this. Right. And as kind of an aspiring writer at the time, I thought this is a great opportunity for me to start writing and to get the word out about what I'm seeing and experiencing so that maybe we can make some change here. Um, in the uh, process of doing that, I started to make um, relationships, uh, started working for various papers, probably wrote for 10 different Native American newspapers across the country over a period of 20 years. Um, eventually ended up working with Clyde Belcourt, who was a co-founder of the American Indian Movement, okay. and writing with him his autobiography, which came out uh, in 2017. Okay. Um, so I uh, have had an opportunity to really um, understand, get to know, make relationships, and I would say be as close to uh, understanding the Native American, if you could say, you know, that's way too broad, but sure. understanding Native American history and present as much as kind of an outsider could. Yeah, I mean, I, I can imagine you're one of about one person who's <laughs> yeah. moved to the Rosebud <laughs> Reservation who didn't grow up in the Native community. You know, the only other people I can think of who ended up moving there are, and temporary people move there temporarily, meaning they don't move there with the thought that they're going to be there forever. Um, and their teachers, mm -hmm. because they have to Educators, pull in their, sure. their public school teachers come in from elsewhere. They provide them housing and they lived in a fence compound. Right. By the not, school. not a part of the community. They didn't join the community. Yeah. Right. And you, you went and moved right in. 
we went and moved right in. You know, we went and said hello to our neighbors, or they came and said hello to us. We uh, ended up meeting uh, all kinds of people who were practicing Native American or Lakota mm-hmm. uh, spirituality, and I was lucky enough for, uh, to be invited to participate, and I, I was able to learn enough there and become uh, enough of a part of that knowledge base and understanding that um, that has served me well my entire life. I have come to understand like this landscape. I come to understand much better who I was as that kid living, mm-hmm. you know, in a dead end street in St. Louis park next to a Creek by the lake and the significance of all of these places around me. And um, I'm going to throw, I'm going to throw out a, a gigantic fact here that we can, or we don't have to talk about, <laughs> Sure. but I had a, a heart transplant two years ago. Okay. Uh, down at Mayo clinic. And I would say that all of this, stuff being involved with the Lakota and Dakota communities served me so powerfully in that setting. Um, I was able to walk out of uh, Mayo Clinic Hospital in seven days after receiving a new heart. Wow. Yeah. I'm like, what, (laughs) what you have a, you have a, you are a heart transplant. Yes. And to throw an even bigger, mm, fact into something we never knew we were going to talk about today i found out now i live down on nicollet island which is you know nearby here yeah you do right now yeah okay uh you that's a interesting place too sure is is that Lori barbaro's (laughs) yeah husband's father Uh, Lori barbaro's boyfriend's father Okay, boyfriend's okay. father lives, lives down there. there. Very small community. Yeah, very small. Isn't he native or, too? Wasn't Gosh, I don't know. I, now that now that you bring that up, God, I'm not I, sure. I'm probably remembering my facts well, wrong. Well, you but, probably know. Do you know Babes in Toyland? Of course. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I used to know. I mean, I haven't t- spoken to Lori in years, but back when she was the scene queen, and I yeah. was hanging out. And what about? I was living with Soul Asylum at the time. Okay. And, oh, and, shit. and members of the Jayhawks. Yeah. Yeah. 35th and Lindale. Right. That's uh, where we. That's what where about, we what about Chris Osgood? Is he. Chris uh, Osgood. Yeah. I know Chris Osgood. He and I intersected when uh, I lived in Lower Town. And he was working at the Northern Warehouse next door doing right. artwork. Yeah. God. So you know, you, you, you know you, half of our guests. Yes. I, well, yeah, I, I looked at your list and I did know quite a few of them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So back, you were getting, get yeah, back. you were saying something though. Yep. The, the heart transplant. The heart transplant. And, then, and, and you and live on Nicollet Island. And oh, okay. Other... So, so I, I, you know, after the transplant, I, I had this sense of, okay, I didn't just get a heart. I actually inherited a whole knowledge, a whole base of information that came with the heart. Right. So I'm getting all this information directly from my donor. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I came to realize was that he had the same values as me. He had the same interests as me and he was from the same landscape as me. It's amazing. And it turns out uh, about a year later, uh, I was able to meet some of his friends. turns out that he was from Northeast Minneapolis about lived about a mile or two away from me. Wow. And he was into all of the same things as I am. He was you know, canoeist, sailor, adventurer. We were super into the Mississippi River, took a trip all the way down to the mouth of the river, um, you know, not, not, not shortly before his death. And just that he and I had everything in common. And uh, so and you it's could, been... You knew that through cellular memory. I knew that just because, yeah, I was being communicated with directly. And uh, it's a crazy story. I, I plan to write it sometime. You, you should. Yeah. I mean, obviously. Yeah. Uh, uh, 
And then you've met some of his friends. I've met his friends. Yep. So let me tell you how that happened. Yeah. So my first instinct when I woke up from the surgery was um, <clears throat> I, felt, I felt a homesick feeling in, in the new heart. Oh, he wants to go home. I didn't know it was a he at the, at the time, but I felt like yeah, he wants to go home. All right. So my, my burning desire from that moment on was to reunite his heart with his family and friends. And so I started writing letters and you have to, you have to go through this long process to get letters to his people because you can't contact them directly. It's all, Mm -hmm. it's all anonymous. Right. So I would write a letter, bring it to my social worker at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. She would forward it to life source, which is up here along the river, not really close to, to where we are now. They would forward it to the family if the family wanted it to see it, which they did. And then they would write back through the same channels. So maybe a letter might take a month or more to, to reach its target. Well, after three of these letters had been passed back and forth, the family said to me, um, we are interested in meeting you, but uh, we're not ready yet, but someday. And in the mindset that you, that you get into after you've been so close to death is you really just live in the moment. Right. You, wanna, you don't, you don't take, any, you don't take right. any moment for granted. It's just mm-hmm. that this is, this is all there is yeah. here and now which is great perspective. And it's been really mentally healthy for me. Has it? Yes. To go through that experience and to come out the other end right. alive and well. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm the happiest I've ever been most spiritually, emotionally free I've ever been Right. Uh, because it's all a bonus. I came so close to, I actually died. We'll talk about that another time. <laughs> well, I, God, I mean, I'm kind of dying to know how you almost died. Well, let me tell you how I met his friends first. Yeah, so yeah, so yeah. one day after I get this letter and they say someday, I'm like, well, there's no such thing as some, someday to me means never. That's, right. I've always felt that way. Uh, like since I was a young child, I don't mm-hmm. know why, but I, I've always wanted just to do like, fuck it. There is no, why wait? The I'm, only moment we're guaranteed is this one. Yeah. The one we're in now. I mean, mm-hmm. it, we will We'll talk when uh, off yeah, yeah, we can Mike, but uh, yeah. we kind of jump in head first into everything we do. So yeah, yeah. So uh, my donor was the same way. Uh, he he was kindred. He was a kindred spirit. Yeah. Um, so I'm feeling down about having received this letter about someday meeting them. So I decided to do what I do, which is get up and go outside to get over feeling down. Taking a walk, I was going to walk up to Dinky Town, maybe have some lunch at the Chinese restaurant up there. And I'm walking along St. Anthony, Maine, along the warehouses, and I suddenly get a little bit dizzy. So I decided to stop and sit on the lip of one of the warehouses. And as I'm doing that, I look down the sidewalk and I noticed a guy that looks familiar. And um, one reason that I'd been feeling so down is because I could feel that his people were close by. Yeah. They were all around me. I knew it. I was just, like I say, I was being communicated to. Hmm but I didn't know who they were. And so it was, it was like so frustrating and I was feeling really down about that. So I'm looking down the sidewalk and I noticed the guy is working on uh, an old bike, a moped basically. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I know about, knew about my donor through the letters that I was getting was that he was an expert moped mechanic and that he was also in this big social group that, uh, that all ride mopeds sure. together. So I'm like, not only does he look familiar, but now I see he's working on a moped. This guy knows my donor. Right. So I'm certain of it. And I don't know what to do suddenly because now that the opportunity is right in front oh, yeah, of me, that's... this is not, this is, this is off script because yeah, you're yeah. supposed to like sign confidentiality agreements right. and mm-hmm. all this stuff. You're not supposed to meet 
your donor's people on the street. <laughs> so I, I'm walking, I, I'm going that way anyway. And so I, I'm, as I'm walking past him, I, I still don't know what I'm going to say. And if you anything. don't know your donor's name, do you? No, nothing. Yeah. Okay. I don't know anything about him except, I mean, from outside sources, outside of me, except of the few details that I've gotten from his family. And the doctors had told me that he was, quote, a young man in excellent physical condition. Mm-hmm. Okay. So as I'm walking up to this guy, I'm unsure what to do. Suddenly he turns and looks at me, makes eye contact, and he says to me, hey, man, can you give me a hand? Of course. <laughs> Good Lord. So I'm like, all right, you know. So I sit down on the other side of the bike from him. I'm handing him tools and stuff, and suddenly I, it dawns on me, like I'm working on a moped, right? which is exactly what my donor right. did. And then the guy says to me, I've been working on getting this carburetor in place all morning and I can't get it. He's like, will you give it a try? I'm like, which one's the carburetor? <laughs> <laughs> not your world, right? No, I'm not a small engine guy, <laughs> but I'm like, I wonder if this information is in here. I wonder if the, the memory of this could serve me. Yeah. So I just decided to, I'm going to turn off my brain and let my body do it. I put my hand on the part. I don't know where it's supposed to go. Um, but I just start kind of twisting it, manipulating it, pushing it. And suddenly the guy says to me, hold on a minute. It's in. You got it. <laughs> Took me like 15 seconds to do what he'd been working on all morning. And this was a guy who owns several bikes and works on them all the time. So he, he screws the part in, puts the wires back, whatever, and fires it up and drives away. He comes back a minute later and we're talking. And I said, you know, the reason why I'm asking all these questions is because my, my donor was really into mopeds. And he's like, oh, really? Who, who was he? I'm like, I don't know. I said, well, when did you receive your heart? I said, it was May 14th of 2017. He thinks back. He's like, oh, yeah. He says, I knew your donor. He says to me, he was the most free-spirited person I've ever known. And he proceeds to tell me about all these exploits and outdoor adventures. And I suddenly realized when he tells me about like how the guy was like a really accomplished and fearless climber, why I had suddenly lost my fear of heights with this new heart <laughs> that made perfect sense now. And um, so I went on to meet several of his friends from that meeting. And uh, they, like I thought, they all lived right around me. And we had so much in common and sitting there and talking with them. It was like I had known them forever. Yeah, that's absolutely amazing. That really is amazing. I mean, I, it, it, that's a phenomenal thing to happen. It really is. You know, and it's still happening. It's obviously. still happening because, like, again, I'd like to, I, I'd like to tie this back to uh, my work and my, my life within mm-hmm. – uh, the Lakota, Dakota communities from what I learned from those communities about the way spirituality works here. Now, Mm -hmm. most of the spirituality or religion that we probably came out of, I'm not saying we're religious. I don't know you guys that well. Right, right. But the the traditions that we come out of, we have these holy books and these stories, Mm -hmm. and they all take place halfway around the world, you know, in Jerusalem or, you know, what is today the West Bank or Jericho or places like that, you know? But there is, but we are on a holy land right now that has its own stories and its own, you know, biblical tradition. Yes. And in, in coming to understand this, 
I've come to understand how to interact and gain benefit from the spiritual power here. And I really believe very strongly that this has served me um, throughout this entire transplant and, and post-transplant in a way that has been very, very um, fascinating, uh, has been a constant process of uncovering new information and new sort of leads. Um, but at the same time, one of my frustrations is how do I translate this experience, which is so unusual, you know, when you combine the transplant and the spirituality stuff and, and my other, you know, things from my background, how do I tell a story about that in a way that uh, would translate into a good book? You'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah. You really will. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, you've... You, uh, You've already started it. I mean, <laughs> yeah, right. you're you're working. It's you know I don't want to get into too much detail, but we I, I feel like uh, it's certain to me that we were put together. Oh yeah, uh, because we we have we're building a digital platform to provide a digital museum for people, right? And you know what what's a digital museum versus a like? Do we need these things? Is it going to help the world? Uh, these are questions we have all the time. Mm -hmm. Like, is, is this useful or should we be doing things the way we used to do them? Or, you know, is the old way better oral tradition or something like that? Right. And, and I think the only answer I can kind of get for myself these days is of course it, it's okay. The, the, the digital revolution is here anyway. Right. And it's, it's being defined and propelled along by someone and if that someone isn't us, then the things that I care about aren't going to be baked into the, you know, the digital world. Mm -hmm. And the things that Jim and I do care about are, and Sarah, you know, art, institutional memory, personal memory. Uh, and so we're, we're having, we've got meetings with um, a couple of different tribes as we, one of the things we thought of very early on is this digital museum that we're creating is sort of perfectly tailored to tribal memories that are being lost. Mm. And but how do you how do you as a as a couple of middle-aged white guys how do you get into that community and and do it in a way I'm not trying to gain trust by presenting any sort of falsehood. I I actually want this to happen. Yeah, sure. And I don't, you know, we've we've managed our first couple of hurdles to get to get to have gained some trust. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, so I, I, I suspect that we were put together. <laughs> I really do. Yeah. It's really interesting. I yeah. Mean, because I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the, by the fact that you were able to, uh, you know, run into your, it's amazing person's friends, you know? Right. I mean, when I say that I, I could tell that they were nearby, I could feel their presence when I contacted the next step in my sort of journey of contacting his friends, he told me about this, this Facebook group mm -hmm. where I could learn more about my donor. The guy I met first, the guy on the sidewalk with the moped. Yeah. He wasn't close to my donor, but knew him well because my donor was well known okay. in that community. Um, he turned me onto this Facebook group. I, I contacted them. Five minutes later, the administrator got back to me and he's like, your donor was my best friend. No shit. And he suggested a meeting. Well, I think I suggested a meeting because he wanted to know about, you know, what's what's his heart been doing in the world. 
which I thought was a beautiful question and I was happy to, to answer it. Yeah. Um, the meeting place that he suggested was literally the closest bar to my house. <laughs> About a quarter mile away, directly across the Mississippi from Nicollet Island. Mm-hmm. Then like the next night I hopped in my canoe and I paddled across the river and went, <laughs> went and met five of his friends. And he didn't know where I was on earth. You know, yeah. I could have been in, in Australia. Right. Oh, yeah. But he right. suggested, without asking me where I was, the closest spot to my house. A bar you could paddle to. Yeah. <laughs> Good God. <laughs> John, wow. <laughs> um, it is really... I mean, that's that's very interesting. I'll, I'll just share a little tidbit. Then this is different. Oh, But, yeah. you know, so I'm adopted. Mm-hmm. And uh, I recently did the Ancestry and 23andMe and, and whatnot. But so now I have my bio family that i have found yeah but uh my cousin was actually just over here to the studio who i just found this is all within the last year wow but um so my biological father has passed away um but within these conversations um i have a cousin that lives by is next door neighbors to one of my best friends who I grew up with. I actually know her, you know. You knew her previously? Y- yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I just didn't know she was my cousin. Right. <laughs> you know. Right. Right. We can. Yep. That's funny <laughs> shit. I'm sure there's all kinds of. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. But what, what also is interesting is the other day when my, uh, my uh, other cousin was over here, we were talking about my father, my biological father, and he worked at Graco, which is right across the street over yeah, here. Right. You know, for hundred years. And I've been in Northeast, you know, so it's, I'm always interested, you know, as I'm going forward with this, the proximity, you know, within a one mile radius, my entire biological family has always been around me, Unreal. including three sisters that I or three half sisters that right. I have. And you could as, have ended up like to use the Australia example, you could yeah. have ended up anywhere. Right. Absolutely. Yep. But you know, um my So one, so how do you make sense of that? Gosh, I you know, I, I'm I'm <laughs> I, I'm trying to make sense of it. I, I I just think it's so interesting. Um, you know, my one sister, the one that I've I've only had contact with one of them and she's older, so I had th- so my mother had three daughters before me. But anyways um, when she was 17 years old, she would walk by my house and she, and I was 11 at that time, you know, 11, no years idea old. they right. were related. No, no idea. She, but, yeah. And she was walking by my house every day to work down the street at the U-Haul station wow. as a young girl, yeah. you know? And I, and I just think like, shit, I was outside playing in my front yard and she'd be walking by. Do you remember you know? seeing her? No. Right. But, 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 you know, I, I just think it's interesting, you yeah, know? And, right. and so I don't know, I can't say like I had that feeling, but at the same time, I've been very comfortable my entire life. Yeah. Not really wondering right. about that. Right. Very different than yours, but still there's an interesting thing that connects you. Well, again, like my, that's an amazing story, but it, I think it There's a lot of similarities there to yeah. the story I'm telling. I mean, I, my transplant was in Rochester, Minnesota, about 75 miles south of here. Mm-hmm. Um, I was there waiting for uh, four months, so it felt... Wow. Uh, at least it, the emotional feeling was that I was quite distant from home. Yeah. Waiting in the ICU for four months, so hooked up to machines and so Yeah, forth. that's... Uh, very, very far away from here in that sense. And then to come back home and to feel like I was bringing... I had lost my heart. That's something you don't really think about when you get a transplant is like, no, you're, they're going to pull your heart out today. 
And you know you're getting a new heart, and that's really what you're focused on, but you don't focus on losing your heart and what, what goes along with that. And then to come back up here and to feel like, okay, yeah, this heart is also at home here, but in a little different way. It has different people, mm-hmm. but we appreciate the same places. I mean, I live on the Mississippi. His ashes were spread on the Mississippi, uh, just downriver of my house. Um, you know, and I think like your story, my story, when I asked you, how do you make sense of it? Yeah. It's, um, it's kind of like, well, should we even try or should we just accept it for what it is and just incorporate that into our worldview and move forward? Yeah. And that's sort of what I do. I think, you know, I mean, I, you're you're very much at peace. Yeah, very much so. I'm not sure that there's anything for me. I'm not sure what there is to solve on it. You know what I mean? It's just, it's just my life. And that's just part of it. Right. Yeah. Do you ever wonder, though, if sometimes, like, as I learn these things, and as you be, you're blown away by learning all these facts about your biological family, I'm blown away by learning directly from my new heart and meeting his people spontaneously, seemingly. As you start to learn, and, you know, we're not getting any younger. We're, uh, I'm in my 50s. Um, growing so much and so rapidly, increasing my knowledge base at this age, it's almost frustrating to know what to do with it. Right. And that's why I think that this, this show, this podcast you guys are doing is so valuable because as you learn and grow, you have an outlet for sharing it with people. And I think that's really what it's about. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm extremely flattered because <laughs> we, we sort of bumbled our way into this like we do, or seemingly bumbled right. our way into it. And uh, what's come of it is this fantastic opportunity to get to meet people in our community mm-hmm. and to realize the sort of the the shared connection that that we've been seeing is that everyone's really decent and and really wants a better world and mm-hmm. a better you know better outcome for people and I think you know this might might be slightly abstract but it's something that's that's been kind of percolating in me for a while and it's this you know what's what's unique about this digital path that we started down a couple of years mm-hmm. ago, which it, it's hard to even quantify, like what is a digital thing or path or whatever. But sure. I sort of look at it like uh, we've been talking about placing digital monuments around uh, and and having the story be told that of a past that you can't see. Right. So this is mm-hmm. this is something that happened here before, and in in the physical world it. You know, you could put a plaque or a monument there, but that's going to be a, that's going to be one person's history or story. Right. But there's probably you know a thousand things that have happened at any spot, or millions of things. Sure. And I feel like like maybe this is just a dumbass white Western kind of male thing to to only notice now. But I feel like the the spiritual imprint of our past lays around us without us ever seeing it. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. And that's what we as sort of like Westerners come out of like the European tradition. For whatever reason, our tradition doesn't acknowledge that. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it's missing. It's lacking. And it's, and it's so much of really what is the stuff of life. And when you try to engage in that and engage people in that discussion— most of the time they think you're crazy. You know, the the people who seem to have yeah. it figured out yeah. are the kindest. The, like, 
it's like those, I, you know, I don't know if it's sort of, you know, this whole woke movement or enlightenment or, you know, I, I've been uh, doing some meditation the last several years and I feel like that really has opened up something in me. Mm-hmm. But it's it's as if the people who have always kind of noticed these things have always felt that connection. And it, maybe it's different religious groups, but I don't really think so. I don't think any one religious thing fits everybody and has worked for everybody. Yeah. But generally speaking, people who seem to have figured it out can, can be so kind in the way they look at you like a child, like, Oh, you're, you're finally starting to get it. Aren't you? Cause you, <laughs> I don't think you can lead people to it directly like that. I don't think you can force it. It is like being a child. Like I can't teach my children every lesson by teaching them every lesson. No, but I think let's, let's, let's bring this discussion full circle. Why do we bring kids on canoe trips? Right. Because we are trying to open that door to the kinds of discoveries that we have experienced and enjoyed by being in the woods, being on the water and traveling under our own power. That is a doorway to opening our minds to uh, the greater world and to spiritual experiences and to spiritual realities. Absolutely. I remember, I remember being asked so many times in the 20 years I was working at that camp, like, when are you going to get a real job? I get, you know, it's like I'm a kid at heart, and therefore I took this job working at a camp, and I really am just escaping the real world or something. Mm-hmm. No. And, in, and in my response was always like, I've got the most real job I think I'll ever have. Absolutely. In the summertime, um, I receive a paycheck for taking kids canoeing and hiking. Um, would I rather do that or sit in an office? Uh, would I rather do that or uh, maybe you know, build a road or drive a bulldozer or do something destructive? Right. I mean... Almost anybody, you say, hey, you know what? You want to get paid to go canoeing today? Yeah. They're going to take that over whatever <laughs> yeah. it is that they're doing. For sure. And yet they'll look at us doing a job like that and think that it's not real. Yeah. Not valid. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, it was, you know, it remains uh, the most real thing I think I've ever done. And you have a lot of experience in it, so you do it well. And it takes a lot of experience to do it well, especially because it's not just you out there, but you're guiding these kids in so many different ways takes tons of experience to really have the wherewithal to do that well. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm being flattered. Uh, and you know how us Minnesotans don't deal well with any no, sort no, of you're flattered. No, no, you're turning, you're turning red. <laughs> I do think... Uh, I, I do think I've allowed myself in, in recent years to understand just how good I am at guiding canoe trips. I've taken now basically a trip every year into the Boundary Waters uh which I had never paddled in the Boundary Waters prior to uh, a few years ago. Mm-hmm. The, the camp I worked at, we always went to Canada. Yeah. Um, and the Boundary Waters, I love it, but uh, I think during the summer it might be a little busy. But I I take these late fall MEA weekend trips and uh, just going out with, with not kids from my camp and with novices, I, I understand like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much totally at ease the whole time. In the sense that I feel like I've got everything under control as much as you possibly can in that moment, knowing right. that there is some, you have to just, you have to let some things go. There's, you're never in full control no. on a canoe trip. No, uh, You know, I, I, as well, like I, I grew up going to the Boundary Waters. That, that was kind of my backyard. 
you know, and it's a, it's interesting how a lot of people think of the boundary waters as, as the ultimate, you know, Oh, you're a canoeist. Have you ever been to the boundary waters? Right. You know, yeah, I've been to the boundary waters. It's fine. I mean, I'm glad the boundary waters is there because it's gorgeous. It's the water there is clean and it needs to be preserved. Yep. However, as an experienced canoeist, I hate going to the boundary waters. <laughs> That's the way I feel too. And here's why. <laughs> I didn't want to say it, but yeah. I feel the same way. You have to go and you have to talk to federal authorities. They yeah. give you a briefing, which is completely condescending, which fine, I can live with that. I understand that there's a lot of novices that need to <laughs> totally. get that information. Okay, fine. Last time I went there, after giving me and the kids I was with this briefing, the ranger then pulled out a basket of plastic toys from behind uh, the no desk shit. and offered the children plastic toys to bring on their canoe trip with them. I mean, what, what, is, what are you doing? And then after that, <laughs> so we were hassled by rangers at the parking area, hassled again in the campsite where they used some kind of uh, lie, really, to say, can we walk up into your camp and inspect it? Right. Um, it was, you know, that's not what I go into the woods to do. No, I, I don't go there to talk to a bunch of authority figures and right. answer their question. I go there to be free. God. Uh, so why, <laughs> here's the real reason why <laughs> I love you. the boundary waters, because everybody who goes on canoe trips goes there. And so 99% of Minnesota, especially the river untouched. is untouched. There's nobody out there and there are so many other places to go. Yeah. So, and it is, uh, it's a sanitized entry point for certain people. I, I mean, I think it it has its value, but it, it has been kind of ruined in the same way we ruin everything a little bit. It's kind of been co-opted by L.L. Bean. If yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Boundary Waters people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and yeah. sorry, L.L. Bean. <laughs> yeah, right. um, well, John, uh, this has been a, a true pleasure. And I don't think it really has. Yeah. Thank you, you guys. It has been for me too. A lot. Uh, I don't think it's, it's uh, not something that we're not going to repeat. I think we have to do this again. I would love to come back anytime. There's, uh, there's more to get after here. Is there any chance that Jose would ever, is he still around? I think we could get Jose to come in. Do you? I I do. I'd love to have both you guys in actually. Let's do it. Um, yeah, because absolutely. That I would love to meet him. That I was before we left. I was going to say, well, where's Jose right now? Jose lives uh, in South Minneapolis, just off Lake Street near near the river, and he's got two young kids that he's raising as a single father. And uh, he and I are in contact. Well, of course, at, you are at least weekly, if not, you know, two three times a week. You so. can't go through this adventure and not end up. Very close to I mean, bonded. He must feel like I, that's, that's gotta be my first question to him. You know, how do you feel after a trip like that? Mm, you know? Yeah. And, and that's, is uh, he going to think it's weird that I, that I hug him when I first meet him? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> should I avoid that urge? Um, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe she can maybe hug him on the way out. <laughs> it's probably safer. Um, yeah, I just, uh, you know, knowing what I know about those trips, for for him to have endured this, um, I mean, that's stuck a it out. Huge, huge accomplishment. And Absolutely. I mean, yeah. Even even if he was a pain in your ass, you know, big deal. You you talked him into it. You, I would. You yeah. deserved it. Totally. Yeah. You know? I knew what I was getting into. Yeah. Yeah. You, but man, 
really, you know, without knowing him, I'm proud of him for having gone. I mean, and, he and did great. Stuck it out. He really did great. And, he, you know, he later said to me something to the effect of, you know, credited me with saving his life right. because he, of the kind of trouble that he was facing in the city that summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said to him, I didn't do any of that. You did that all yourself. Exactly. He's the one who maintained his relationship with me over the years leading up to that trip. As a youth worker, I just thought, you know, you go there, you do your youth work, you get your paycheck. When the program's over, you go home. Mm-hmm. But Jose was like, nope, I made this connection. It's real and we're going to keep it. He, he would, It's amazing. He wouldn't let it go. So he did that. Uh, and when I asked him to go on the trip, he said yes. And He that, got in the damn boat with you. Got in the boat and he stuck it out the whole <laughs> I way. mean, that it, is... It was all important. I mean, you know, is to get yourself, you know, we were just talking about proximity, you know, but to get yourself when you're in trouble sometimes to get yourself out of that is so hard because your whole world revolves. Oh, it's your, you know, you don't know anything or two miles, you know, right. Especially when you grow up in such poverty, like, like he did when literally there's basically a different government on every bro- right. block if you consider a gang a, a, a source of like yep. type of government right. yeah. um so yeah so the world became a whole lot bigger for him and um you know i'm not saying that it solved all of his problems because it absolutely didn't but it definitely gave him a larger worldview and a lot more resources sources yeah, to expand of, upon and to draw upon a lot of different tools that you would learn on, on a trip like that. Absolutely. That you otherwise couldn't get, it makes me, it makes me really want to get back out and get yeah. some canoe trips planned. So if anyone wants to go on a canoe trip, uh, get in touch with me, get in touch with John, we'll figure it out. We'll help you in any way we can. Can't wait. Let's do it. <laughs> um, is there anything before we go, is there anything that you want to kind of promote right now? Or do you feel, how, how would, how, yeah, how, how would a person find yeah. So just you. again, the book is called Canoeing with Jose. It is published by Milkweed Editions here in Minneapolis. Um, Canoeing with Jose is all available in some bookstores, but is definitely available online through uh, Milkweed um, Editions website or, of course, Amazon. Okay. And uh, is there a, a johnlurie.com or something like that where they uh, can see any of your other writing or I think it may have lapsed, but if, <laughs> I, think I, I think I forgot to make my it. payment on johnlurie.com. <laughs> but if you want to see some of my other writings or just kind of, you know, look at what I've been up to in the past, uh, I have tons of work in uh, the circle newspaper. I was also an editor at the rake, uh, which was a, a yep. magazine, glossy magazine here in the cities a few years back. Uh, I did a lot of work locally here for, uh, Metro Magazine. Um, so there's definitely things out there that, that people can find. All right. Great. All right. Great. John, well, thank you for coming in. Thank you yeah. guys so much for having me. It's been amazing. Thank you. Cool. Today's show is brought to you by the Andalin app, a first-of-its-kind digital legacy preservation app that allows you to digitally attach photos, videos, and audio recordings to the places and objects you love. Imagine hearing your grandmother's voice telling the stories of your family heirlooms. Preserve your memories, prepare for the future, and share with those you love. Andalin, available in the App Store and Google Play. Visit andalin.app for more information. Need some help with a construction project? Looking for thoughtful design and honest answers about what is possible and what is not? Kinetic Design Build is a full-service boutique remodeler servicing residential and commercial clients in the Twin Cities. Design and build with purpose. 
Visit kineticdesignbuild.com to request a consultation. Packing for a trip? Let Pack Simply give you a little help by delivering travel-safe products directly to your door in an airport security-safe pouch. Unbelievably easy and surprisingly simple. Make your life easier. Visit PackSimply.com. Interested in art? James Holmberg is both an artist and an art consultant. His strong connections in the Minnesota art world give him a unique perspective on the talented pool of artists from our region. Let James guide you to an original work that will come alive in your home. Visit jamesholmberg.com to find out more. All right. Do you want to go on a wilderness adventure with me, Sam? Or maybe you know a group of kids who could benefit from an extended break from their electronics. Or maybe you just need a break from those kids. Visit earthedfound.org for more information about how to get started. For information about becoming a sponsor of Legacy Matters, please visit LegacyMattersPodcast.com.